I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. There are some technologies that enhance human efforts and abilities and other technologies that make such a drastic impact, they revolutionize protocol and entire ways of thinking. AI in the healthcare field may be one such technology. Although the popular term is rarely thought of in this context, its ability to offer predictions and distill massive amounts of information is a great benefit to researchers, clinicians, and ultimately, patients. How could AI improve how medical professionals interpret mammograms? What steps are required to make AI tools equitable in order to make a difference at the population level? And perhaps most importantly, how might AI improve existing risk prediction models? That's where Dr. Regina Barzilay comes in. She's a School of Engineering Distinguished Professor for AI and Health in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and a member of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. Because of her focus on AI, she was one of IEEE Intelligence Systems' AI 10 to Watch way back in 2006. Among other recognition, she's received the National Science Foundation Career Award, a MacArthur Fellowship, an ACL Fellowship, and an Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence Fellowship. In 2021, she was awarded the $1 million AAAI Squirrel AI Award for Artificial Intelligence for the Benefit of Humanity, and in 2022 was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Barzilay has been a BCRF investigator since 2022. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Regina Barzilay. Dr. Barzilay, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. I just want to make sure that I've dialed into the right podcast recording. You're an MIT School of Engineering Distinguished Professor for AI and Health in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. We're here to discuss breast cancer, correct? I didn't dial into the wrong Zoom recording, correct? No, but you missed my other important title at MIT. I'm also AI lead for Jamil Clinic, which is a center for machine learning and health at MIT. Yes, I am aware of that. And it's a fascinating mix and intersection of skills and interests. I must confess that of all of your incredible fun facts, MacArthur Fellowship, the first recipient of the Million Dollar Award from the Association of the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, I think the one that I found most amazing was that IEEE Intelligent Systems named you to their AI 10 to watch list in 2006. Most of us had no idea there was such a thing as AI back then, and you were top 10. You've been on the cutting edge all your life, haven't you? At those times, in 2006, it was not very popular term because people kind of thought about AI and all technologies, it didn't work. 
So the list was not maybe the coolest list one can be in. So I was, of course, very flattered to be on the list. But for general audience, AI didn't really mean much. And it's really kind of fascinating to see that previously, I would say, I work in this area and people, what exactly do you do right now? I don't even need to explain because everybody knows. So this was a big change throughout my career. Chat GPT is the best thing that's ever happened to you? So I actually don't use Chat GPT, but it's really exciting to see, you know, how everybody else are using Chat GPT and how people are excited to see. And it's really spectacular to see this amazing progress that happened. When we are looking back at history of the kind of major technological breakthrough, you can imagine, you know, people always give analogy of AI and electricity, but it's true that if you're thinking like in 19th century, when people didn't have central electricity, when, you know, factories were powered by steam engines and other things. So how there was a translation that happened that it totally changed our lives. So it's really interesting to be able to observe it through kind of my lifetime that from it- systems that could barely do anything, when I took my first class in electronic processing, I didn't even see any system that can do anything productive. To observing, you know, machine translation, this part was really super amazing to me, how machines can really produce such a beautiful translations, how a transcription of the speech improved over time. So I still remember those days when it was totally unusable technology. So it's amazing to see. Yes. And it's got to be very reassuring to know that the rest of the world has started to come along to where you've been now. The rest of us have not caught up to you by any stretch, but we're at least in the same time zone as you are. So that's got to be somewhat rewarding. So the connection between AI and breast cancer screening, what is it? And as I understand from reading about you, this work evolved from your own personal experience, didn't it? Yes. One of the areas where we actually don't see AI at all when we experience it as a patient is a healthcare. You know, I was just uh, looking at Boston Globe. I live here, so in Boston Globe. And there was like this article, like 10 uses, 13 uses of AI by Boston citizens. You know, people were saying different things. Somebody was using ChatGPT to write class descriptions. Somebody was using for planning meals AI. It was really stunning to see that nobody ever used it in any way related to healthcare. And it's like very representative. There are lots of different measurements, which are much more systematic than the story in Boston Globe that shows that there is truly no AI in healthcare. But if you're thinking what AI is designed to do, is actually to do predictions and to do prediction about something where we have uncertainty. Because as humans, it's very hard for us to take data, which comes from many different sources, put it together and kind of provide probability distribution over the outcomes. This is not how our mind works. And also, even if you're a very experienced doctor or expert, maybe you've seen in your life 50,000 patients, you know, it's a lot, maybe 100,000 patients, but, you know, you can feed millions of patients, tens of millions of patients to the machine. And machine has this unique capacity to combine the data and to make these predictions. That's how it's optimized. In terms of breast cancer, the specific area where I started in natural language processing, that's what I got my tenure and got all the many of the awards when I was, you know, younger faculty, I work on natural language processing where, you know, machine learning was always a part of how these tools are developed, ChatGPT-like tools. 
in 2014, I was diagnosed myself with breast cancer. And, you know, this stunning thing was that there was really no AI. There is still no AI, actually, when you go to be treated, but there was none. And I wanted to see when I came out of my own breast cancer, I wanted to do something because I felt it's really unfair to women that the technology in 2014 or 15 was still not a year of AI for the crowds, but still this technology is not really is part of cancer care. And among the many different ideas that I had, some of them were really stupid, but um, and one of the ideas that I had was really to understand what is your risk, because I could never perceive myself being high risk. Nobody in my family had breast cancer. Mm. You know, I was athletic, uh, relatively, you know, I was trying to eat well, I never drank or smoked. So based on the traditional risk factor, I was not to eat. So I was wondering, you know, I just always brushed it because, of, you know, I don't have family history or other factors. So why would I be worried? And the question that I wanted to see is how you can predict based on the first mammogram that a woman takes or any subsequent mammogram, how likely is it she's going to develop breast cancer? This is the question which is we're trying to answer without AI. And this is something which is called density, which shows you how much white on the mammogram you have. And every woman who does mammogram in this country, in the United States, would get a letter that if she has dense breasts, that would tell her that she's at an increased risk of breast cancer and that her cancer may be missed. This is actually a federal regulation. But if we are looking at this measurement, it's a very faulty measurement because above 40% of women have dense breasts. So clearly not 40% of women likely get breast cancer, not even half of that. So the question that we ask, can you in a more accurate way to translate the pattern of a woman that we can see that she doesn't have breast cancer, can we take whatever is there and predict whether she's going to develop breast cancer in the future? And that's what we worked on using the power of machine learning to teach the machine to take the images of patients which look to us and look to the doctors cancer-free and kind of assess what will be their trajectory in the next few years in terms of breast cancer. So describe for me, if you would, please, how does it work? What is Mirai, M-I-R-A-I? Wonderful quote from you that with AI and the work that you're doing and with Mirai, we're not just looking for the cancer, we're looking at the soil that allows the seed of cancer to grow. So take me through the detail. How does it work? So Mirai is actually the person who did Mirai for his PhD is my student, Adam Yala, who is now a professor at Berkeley UCSF. And he came up with his name Mirai, if I'm not mistaken, it's future in Japanese. The idea is the following, that as I already alluded to you, that people were trying through this density pattern, trying to, to predict what is there that happens in the tissue before we can actually see cancer. And people try to do it using kind of just analysis, like looking as humans and try to say, okay, this is a bunch of women who didn't have cancer. That's how their mammogram looked a few years before. And this is a woman who did get cancer. That's how their mammogram looked like. But it's a very imprecise. So instead, what we've done, we gave to the machine images of women, which we knew what happened to them in the next five years. So the machine would kind of see the images of somebody who doesn't have cancer in the next five years. It would see images of somebody who would get cancer within two years and images of somebody who is going to get cancer in four years or in five years. 
by providing this kind of pairs of image and the outcome, machine can correlate particular features of the image with certain label. And it's not very different from, you know, your iPhone that is trained to identify your face when you want to unlock it. So in this case, instead of training it on your face, you train it just on the image and the outcome. There are many kind of techniques that you can do to do the better job, but this is a basic idea. You just apply a version of computer vision algorithm that is trained on the patient outcomes. And then once it's trained, once it's seen hundreds of thousands of examples like this, they can actually go take a new image that it hasn't seen before and give you the likelihood of developing breast cancer in the next few years. I know that what you were just describing was the retrospective part of your research and proving out the viability of Mirai. I'll ask you in a moment about the prospective trial that you are doing. But given what you just described, would it have caught your breast cancer? Yeah. So actually, it was very interesting that after I started working on it, I had my mammograms. I took like three mammograms before I was diagnosed. In my case, it's actually even visible. It's very tiny. It's like ambiguous. But if you see the sequence, you see this particular spot that increases over time. Something like Mirai would flag me as a high-risk patient. So the question is, what do you do if you're high-risk? So you can suggest to this patient to do MRI or maybe ultrasound or do something. It's not going to tell you. It can say that it's already sitting there, but it just kind of flagged. that says you need to go and do follow-up. And I just want to say that one of the things that we did, and it was interesting because it was done just before the pandemic, so early in the pandemic, one thing that we did for Mirai was validated across many different populations. We went to, in the U.S., to Novant in Carolinas. We went to Emory University Hospital. We went to Taiwan. And Adam flew really at the beginning of pandemic to Taiwan, I think in January or February, in Sweden, in Israel, just to ensure that this model actually delivers good results in different populations. And the reason you have to do it, because human cannot validate it. When a human is looking at it, they don't know whether the patient has or has not. So you need to ensure that the Mm. model works well across different groups. And I was going to ask you about that because as the rest of us are becoming more educated around AI, obviously one of the things we all hear about is the risk of bias in various AI executions. But it sounds like that was one of the things, and it's no surprise given what you do and the awards you've won and the years that you've spent thinking and worrying about AI, that you factored in or worked in the individual differences that can occur based on culture or race or historical access to healthcare or any other range of social issues. That's obviously has to be table stakes in terms of creating an algorithm or program like what you created. I think that for breast cancer, it's actually particularly important to take when you're developing AI for this patient certification software, it's really important to ensure that it works across different groups of patients. For instance, we know that African-American patients develop breast cancer much earlier. It's more aggressive cancer. And one of the challenges is, and I talk to many patients, many patients who some of them by chance discovered it, or they already had tumor, which was growing. And it was before 40, before they even start screening. So first of all, we want to ensure that it works for these patients who really need help. But second of all, we can imagine that looking forward, that we can do the first mammogram, not at age 
age 40. Maybe we can do it at age 30 and then say these patients really look kind of safe and mm-hmm. secure and they can come back at 40. But this patient really do not look safe and secure and they maybe should be coming more frequently or particular subpopulation. Because right now, the problem is that for all of us, unless you have BRCA, BRCA, which is only 15% of the breast cancer patients who have this condition, for the rest of us, the recommendation is you come every year since starting at age 40, or there are some people who are about different frequency, like in Europe, every two years. But we really need to have a screening regime, which is personalized to your individual risk, rather than just look at your age and you know your genetic status and so on. I think it's actually key to these tools to be really equitable because this is the only way they can make a difference at the population level. What's been the reaction within the healthcare community, within the breast cancer community? It's very interesting. So when we started working, it took us a while because my papers on breast cancer were the first papers after I wrote like kind of venturing into medical domain before I wrote all my papers in computer science venues. It took us a while, but then we started publishing. And Adam Yala recently attended a breast density conference in Hawaii, and he related to me an interesting conversation. He said some portion of papers were actually trying to check how Mirai works in different populations, in different settings. So it's good to see that people are trying it and independently validating it. But what he said, which was kind of interesting, was that when we first published our paper, it was, I think, 2018 radiology People then in the conference said that they didn't believe our results because it looked so good. Wow. Uh, wow. And now that they validated it and there are more and more results coming, it's changing. But it's not easy because now we are after, like again, paper was published in 2018. Today we're in 2023. We are in a better shape in terms of like people accept it. People talk about it. It's a known thing, but still it's not part of the routine clinical care. And it's not unique to only breast cancer. We see very few AI tools in a routine care. And this is an interesting question, which is maybe not necessarily a scientific question, but more implementational clinical question. How do you take it, some things that work, that work in many research studies, how do you really translate and make it part of patient care? And that's the question that we are all thinking about now. If I understood this part of my research correctly, you're also applying your work now to lung cancer risk. Absolutely. So we actually did the paper. It actually was even better on lung cancer because you use CT scans. CT scans, it's a higher resolution modality than mammograms. And it works reasonably well. And when it predicts that the patient has cancer, it also has a non-trivial chance that it will tell you on which lung it will be located. So what it tells combined these two pieces of evidence that we've collected is that, you know, maybe, you know, the malignancy should grow to sufficient size and have significant impact on the tissue so that human eye can distinguish it. So when we're thinking about risk, when we're talking about BRCA gene, you know, a girl may not have even, you know, doesn't have really breasts. She can be very young, but she still has a higher risk of developing breast cancer. Talking here really about risk. Here, we'll be already maybe talking about the patients where the cancer grows already in their breast or in their lung. It's just machine can predict it much earlier or identify that the patient goes this way before human eye can discriminate it. Tell me about you. 
you grew up in a couple of different countries, I believe, or at least spent a few of your initial years in Moldova before leaving. Tell me about you, your journey, and was it always science for you? Was there another passion or always computer science and always technology? And I know you've got electrical engineering and probably 75 other highly intricate interests and degrees in your background, but was it always that side of your brain or was there ever a possibility that you were going to go and do poetry or creative writing instead? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, so I did my undergraduate. I always was interested in math. So I did my undergraduate in math. And then I was a teacher in high school, actually in Israel. I worked while I was still doing my undergraduate. I was working in high school as a teacher. And then I went to study master's in computer science. And then eventually I got there. So I've never thought of, first of all, doing creative writing or being a poet. And also about the medicine, it was kind of clear to me that it's not my cup of tea because I'm afraid of blood. But, you know, it's really surprising to see how much now I got to it through, you know, this line of research. But luckily I can just do my computer science without observing true patient care. Did growing up in multiple cultures, maybe you don't view it as multiple cultures. I believe you spent your first five years in Moldova before then growing up in Israel and, and going to university in Israel. I think then before coming to the US, was it for graduate school? Is there an aspect of that part of your life that you think has affected your perspective and applies itself to the work you do today? Or do you think irrespective of that background, you'd be doing what you're doing today? I think that one kind of lesson that I see moving through different cultures, I was 20 actually when I moved to Israel, moving through different cultures and kind of observing personally, you know, how the Soviet Union fell apart and well, they would become independent and we moved to Israel and then I came to study in the States. There are lots of things that we take for granted in our daily life, just because it's so and it was so and you don't even question it. When you are moving mm -hmm. between different cultures, actually some things that in one society are normal, in other society they're totally not normal. In some ways, it gives you more courage to try things that others didn't try. When I started working on in this field, you know, when I was, I was literally going to people, which I barely knew at MGH, you know, cancer center and saying, I would like to work with you. I'm a computer scientist and I'm just breast cancer survivor. Can you please work with me? And there were like so many rejections and people say, you don't know what are you doing? And like, go back to your NLP. And I think that, you know, this robustness of kind of you go to different places and you just stand up and try another way that maybe helped me to go through this challenging period. And it was quite challenging. And I just want to say how much I really appreciate support of BCRF because for us to be able to move fast and to really bring it to patients, because this is my key motivation for doing this research, it should really change the outcome for patients. BCRF funding enable us to do these prospective studies where we actually are applying it in clinic, seeing how it changes the outcome and observing the results of prospective studies would be a motivation for really changing the clinical standards, assuming that there is also as good as we hope for. This was another piece of success that, you know, having an organization that can take your idea, however crazy that idea may sound, and provide you the support was really essential for us. Yes, that is among the uh, many things, but it is a key aspect of the work that BCRF does. To close out, Dr. Barzilay, of course, we are all extremely grateful for the historical work that you have done. We are all equally impatient about the future. So what's next? Oh, thank you for asking this great question. So while we are working and Adam and myself are working, Adam actually more leading this work now in the translation, there is a question that again, as a patient, I am really, really curious about and that's what motivates my new project. 
So as you know, many breast cancer survivors are taking tamoxifen, which is a drug, and now the recommendation is 10 years of tamoxifen. Depending on the patient, they experience various side effects. Some of them are immediately apparent. Some of them are less apparent. And there are, again, clinical studies that shows that if you take it instead of five years by 10 years, it decreases your chance of recurrence. There are several questions. Is it really benefiting everybody? Because when I actually was starting my treatment, the standard was five years. Now it is 10 years. Mm. Is it really benefiting everybody? And the answer is we don't really have a good answer to this question. We don't know. Can the patient stop? Maybe somebody is taking for 15 years. Maybe somebody is at five years. There are some different tests that like breast cancer index and others that try to answer these questions, but they're still not a standard of care. So the question that I'm trying to answer, and we're just now in very early stages, can you detect based on your tissue, is tamoxifen is really still benefiting you? Do you need to take it? And the, the bigger question is, and I recently discovered by doing a lot of reading, that actually tamoxifen penetrates blood-brain barrier, and it has a long range of effects on your brain. It's well documented in scientific literature. And again, the question is, can we create another version of the drugs that maybe don't do it? Mm. Or then they can test what does it do to whom based on your kind of your individual makeup? Because another part of my research today is primarily drug discovery. So can we create another drug which will be as effective, but at the same time, maybe with less undesired side effects? So that's what I'm thinking right now. You are genetically incapable of slowing down is the lesson I'm taking from you. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully for sure. Well, I look forward to, and I'll put in my request now for the opportunity to get to talk with you again as you advance on that new effort. We thank you for your historical effort, your continuing efforts on Mariah, and thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Dr. Regina Barzilay. My thanks to Dr. Barzilay for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.